Volume 1, Chapter 5 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois Pierre Guillaume Guizot. Chapter 5 Establishment of the Normans in England. 1066 to 1087. King Harold was dead, but England was not subdued. The Witenayemot had already reassembled in London to choose a new leader for resistance to the invasion. The sons of Harold were still children, and in accordance with a passion for hereditary right remarkable in a country which had often rejected that principle, the popular assembly chose Edgar Atheling, a grandnephew of Edward the Confessor, to receive the perilous title of king of england but edgar was young his intellect was feeble and the chiefs who surrounded him were haughty and undisciplined stigand the archbishop of canterbury was still endeavouring to organise the army with the assistance of the earls edwin and morcar when the approach of the normans rendered it necessary to make an immediate effort after leaving hastings near which town he afterwards built battle abbey the conqueror had begun his march upon london the city was well defended after a slight attack william set fire to southwark and spreading his troops over the country pillaged the domains of all the thanes assembled at the witenayemot he enclosed the capital in a circle of fire and plunder which raised fears of a famine edwin and morcar as well as the saxon prelates had already begun to lose courage the reinforcements expected from the distant provinces were stopped by the Normans. William was at Berkhamstead, still threatening London. An embassy was dispatched with a view to conciliate him. Soon afterwards, the young king Edgar and all his counsellors, including Stigand, Edwin, and Morcar, presented themselves before the Norman, the king to renounce his empty title, the earls to swear fidelity to the conqueror. The duke received them affably. He promised in his turn to govern with mildness in accordance with the ancient laws, and raising his camp at Berkhamshead, he advanced towards London. For a moment he had appeared to hesitate with regard to the opportunity for his coronation, but his barons urged him to take the title which he had won at the point of a sword, and William voluntarily allowed himself to be guided by them, though only consenting to stay in London after he should have built a fortress for his residence. He had need to defend himself, for at every step the hostility of the people over whom he sought to rule displayed itself energetically. On arriving at St. Albans, the Normans found the way obstructed by a number of large trees thrown across the road. "'Who has done this?' inquired William angrily. "'I,' replied the abbot of St. Albans, presenting himself before him, and if others of my rank and profession had done as much, you would not have advanced as far as this. The conqueror did no harm to the proud abbot, but on the day of his coronation he surrounded Westminster Abbey with battalions of his Normans, before entering beneath its majestic roof, attended by his barons and by the Saxons, who in a small number had rallied around him. Stigand had submitted, but he had refused to crown the usurper. This duty, therefore, fell upon the Archbishop of York, Aldred, a prudent man who was able to discern the signs of the times. At the moment when the Duke entered the church, the acclamations of the bystanders were so noisy 
that the Normans posted outside, believing that they were fighting in the sacred edifice, rushed into the neighbouring houses and set them afire. The cries of the inhabitants, the clatter of arms, frightened in their turn the spectators of the ceremony. They hurried in a crowd to the door, hastening to get out, and William soon found himself almost alone in the church with the priests and some devoted friends. The coronation ceremony, however, continued, and when the Duke of Normandy had issued from the church to appease the tumult, he had become King of England. The Normans had dispersed to extinguish the fires or pillage the houses. The Saxons murmured against them under the sombre prognostications of a reign thus inaugurated by fire and sword. William left London almost immediately, and his first measures, mild and conciliatory in their nature, attracted around him a considerable number of Saxon chiefs, to whom he confirmed the title to their domains. A great extent of territory had already fallen into his hands, but the time for dividing the spoils had not yet arrived. In the month of March 1067, William crossed over into Normandy, having entrusted the government of England to his brother, the Bishop of Bayeux. Was his object to place in security the treasures which he had acquired, or to give time for insurrections to break out in order to suppress them energetically? Whatever may have been his motives, he remained eight months in Normandy, enriching the churches and abbeys with the spoils gathered in England, and conducting through his hereditary states the dangerous subjects whom he had brought in his suite, Stigand, Edwin, Morcar, and the youthful Edgar Atheling. Meanwhile the Saxons were groaning under the exactions of Odo of Bayeux, and did not confine themselves to groans. The risings became numerous. The inhabitants of Kent had called to their assistance Eustace of Bologne, who had previously been the cause of the discontent of the English with Edward the Confessor, and who was now at enmity with the conqueror. He came, but Dover Castle opposed to his attacks an unexpected resistance, which allowed the Normans time to arrive and repulse him. William had returned to England, when, in 1068, the ill-feeling of the population of Devon drew upon that country the attention of the conquerors. The aged Githa, the mother of Harold, was living at Exeter, whither she had carried all her wealth. The fortress refused to receive William and his garrison, offering only to pay taxes which were wont to be paid to the Saxon kings. I desire subjects, and do not accept their conditions said william who ordered the assault to be commenced the city was well defended it resisted for eighteen days at length the magistrates less firm than the citizens opened the gates and the inhabitants paid cruelly for their obstinacy githa and the ladies of her suite succeeded in escaping and in concealing themselves in the little islands at the mouth of the severn whence they set sail for flanders but scarcely was the outbreak extinguished in the south when it broke forth in the north. Earl Edwin, to whom William had lately refused to give the hand of one of his daughters, as he had previously promised, had withdrawn himself from the court, and the vassals, as well as the friends of the earl, had already gathered around him in Northumbria. The conqueror at once commenced his march, and entering York, took up his position there after expelling the Saxons. While he was pillaging and ravaging the environs, the old Archbishop Aldred, whose convoys had been seized, 
came to make complaint to the king and reproaching him with the cruelties committed in his name thou art a foreigner king william he exclaimed yet heaven desiring to punish our nation thou hast obtained this kingdom of england at the price of much bloodshed and i have anointed thee with my own hands but i now curse thee and thy race because thou hast persecuted the church of god and oppressed its servants several normans had already grasped the hilts of their swords but william restrained them and permitted the priest to return in safety into his palace where he fell sick and died soon afterward the capture of york had not discouraged the northumbrians they attacked the normans in durham and massacred them in numbers they also had received important reinforcements svein king of denmark at the solicitation of the sons of harold had sent assistance to the insurgents two hundred and forty danish vessels were approaching the coasts edgar atheling having sought refuge in scotland with king malcolm who had married his sister margaret had lately joined the saxon army and promised support to his brother-in-law before the conqueror was apprised of this new danger york was recaptured by the insurgents and edgar atheling had assumed once more the title of king which he had formerly laid at the feet of the norman but winter came and william was already assembling his army settling hastily the affairs which had called him southward he took once more the road towards the north and entered into secret negotiations with the danes insomuch that at the moment that he appeared under the walls of york the pirates weighed anchor and sailed again down the coast pillaging the saxon villages which the king had abandoned to them before taking again the road towards their country malcolm the king of scotland had now come to the assistance of the insurgents york was again taken and put to fire and sword king william then carried his anger and his vengeance into all the counties of the north not a village which was not burned not a domain which was not confiscated the churches and even the monasteries found no shelter against norman rapacity the inhabitants of beverley had amassed their treasures in the church dedicated to saint john of beverley a saxon like themselves who owed them protection this however had no effect on the normans and Tutin, one of the battle chiefs of william penetrated on horseback into the church of the monastery in pursuit of the fugitives who had taken refuge there his horse slipped upon the marble pavement of the sanctuary and the horseman was killed st john of beverley had protected his countrymen and the normans withdrew from his abbey edgar atheling had taken refuge again in scotland but this time the insurrection had found a true chief hereward lord of borne a warrior celebrated by his adventures abroad had entrenched himself in the isle of ely which he called the camp of refuge and from all sides the oppressed english gathered round him william ordered the earls edwin and morcar who had returned to his court to be carefully watched they were apprised of the fact and secretly fled edwin was overtaken and slain by the soldiers who pursued him but morcar succeeded in reaching the isle of ely thence hereward undertook expeditions into the surrounding country and kept at bay all the troops which william sent against him he even defied yves telebois one of the king's favourites whom william had recently induced to marry lucy a sister to edwin and morcar and whose intolerable tyranny contributed to maintain the insurrection in the eastern counties 
but King William caused the little isle to be invested, cutting off from it provisions and reinforcements. The monks of the monastery grew weary of that compulsory fast, and indicated to the Normans the points of attack. The Saxons were beaten, the Bishop of Durham and Earl Morcar were taken and cast into prison for the remainder of their lives. Hereward succeeded in escaping, and in maintaining an irregular warfare, but won over at last by the proposal of William, who sincerely admired his indomitable courage, he consented to lay down his arms. He lived long afterwards upon his domains, which the conqueror permitted him to enjoy. The camp of refuge was destroyed, and the county of Northumberland was given by William to the Saxon Waltheof, a warrior esteemed by his countrymen, whom William had attached to him by giving him the hand of his niece Judith. Being called away into Normandy, in consequence of a rising of the inhabitants of Mel, the king took with him an English army, which fought as valiantly for him as it had against him shortly before. During his sojourn on the continent, he received into favour Edgar Atheling, who had recently failed in a new attempt instigated by the king of France, Philip I. The descendant of King Alfred took up his abode at Rouen, where he had passed eleven years of his life in amusing himself with his horses and dogs. A fresh insurrection recalled William into England. On this occasion it was the Normans themselves who revolted against him. His faithful companion, William Fitzosborne, was dead, and his son, Roger, Earl of Hereford, like his father, had contracted a marriage with the sister of Ralph de War, or Gader, a Breton knight, who had accompanied William, and had been created Earl of Norfolk. This union was distasteful to the king, who had endeavoured to prevent it, for he did not like the Bretons. After the nuptials, the party was excited. Fitzosborne and Wahe spoke of the tyranny of King William, and proposed his overthrow. Waltheof, who was present, had listened, but without taking part in the conspiracy. He had merely promised secrecy, but the secret was betrayed by his wife, who disliked him, and desired to rid herself of her husband. L'Enfant, who had become Archbishop of Canterbury upon the deposition of Stigand, and who was invested with power in the absence of his master, dispatched an army against the rebels. The latter had been obliged to declare themselves before their preparations were completed. When the king recrossed the sea, the insurrection was already almost suppressed. Wire was banished, together with a great number of Bretons. Fitzosborne was put in prison. The unfortunate Waltheof, who had not taken up arms, but was a Saxon, son of a glorious Seward, and Earl of Northumbria, was executed, to the great indignation of his fellow countrymen, who came in crowds to pray at his tomb, and attributed to him numerous miracles. William did not allow Judith to marry the man for whom she had sacrificed her husband. She, on her part, refused the marriage which he offered her, and the king having stripped her of all her possessions, this wicked woman was reduced to wander sometimes in England, sometimes on the continent, bearing with her everywhere tokens of her misery and shame. Thus ended the great insurrection in England. William was master of the country, and the harsh repressive measures which he had employed at length bore their fruits. The Saxons murmured under the weight of their misfortunes, but no longer dared to revolt. The king, frequently called into Normandy by his quarrels with his oldest son, Robert Carthouse, 
was able now to leave England without anxiety. When he arrived at manhood, Robert called on his father to divest himself in his favour of the Duchy of Normandy. "'I am not accustomed to throw off my clothing before going to bed,' replied William, and Robert, irritated, had revolted against his father, and endeavoured to arouse against him embarrassments and enemies on all sides. In vain had his mother Matilda, who loved him tenderly, endeavoured many times to reconcile him with his father. Robert could not endure the yoke of paternal authority. He journeyed about the continent, expatiating on his grievances and squandering the money which his mother sent to him secretly, to the great vexation of William. He received assistance from the King of France, Philip I, who detested his father and who installed him in the fortress of Gerberois on the confines of Normandy, whence it was easy for him to pillage the neighbouring territory. William besieged Gerberois. During a sortie, Robert found himself face to face with a knight of robust form, concealed by his armour, and having his visor lowered, with whom he contended for some time. At length he unseated him, and was on the point of dispatching his antagonist, when the wounded knight called his people to his aid, and Robert recognised the voice of his father. In spite of his vanity, Robert's heart was accessible to generous sentiments. He threw himself on his knees before his prostrate father, entreated his pardon, raised him with his own hands, and set him on his horse. A reconciliation followed, for Robert was softened and penitent, but a fresh quarrel soon hurried the son out of Normandy. He set forth, bearing with him a malediction which his father never revoked. While the rebellions of his eldest son detained the conqueror in his Norman domains, his brother Odo, Bishop of Bayeux, whom he had created Earl of Kent, had made himself detested in England. A brave and able warrior, the bishop had often led to battle the soldiers of William, but he had taken advantage of his influence to oppress the poor Saxons, extorting from them enormous riches. His vast treasures, the grand position which his brother occupied, and the conquest of the Normans in Italy, had awakened in the heart of the Bishop of Bayeux the hope of becoming Pope. He had bought a palace in Rome, and had sent there a great deal of money. When he resolved to go himself into Italy, and began to make preparations for his journey, gathering round him a number of Norman pilgrims anxious to obtain pardons for their sins by that holy enterprise. Scarcely, however, had William become cognizant of his brother's project when he returned from Normandy, and meeting the prelate in the Isle of Wight, caused him to be immediately arrested. Then, reassembling his council, he enumerated before the barons his grievances against the Bishop of Bayeux, his cruelties, his extortions, his secret manoeuvres. "'What does such a brother deserve?' he asked in conclusion. No one replied. "'Let him be arrested,' said the king, "'and I will see to him.' The barons hesitated. William himself advanced towards his brother. "'Thou hast not the right to touch me,' exclaimed Odo. "'I am a priest and a bishop. The Pope alone is empowered to condemn me.' "'I am not judging the Bishop of Bayeux, but the Earl of Kent,' replied William, and having sent him across the sea into Normandy, he imprisoned his brother in a dungeon, to the great satisfaction of the English, who detested him. William had lost his wife, Queen Matilda, in 1083, the only softening influence which had tempered that imperious will had disappeared. 
His two remaining sons, William and Henry, quarrelled with each other. The Danes were again threatening the shores of England, where they could easily have found support, and the English, sullen and subjected, nourished in their hearts a deep hatred towards the sovereign who had despoiled them, not only to enrich his Norman adherents, but in favour of the stags and deer, whom, says the chronicle, he loved like his children, and for whose sake he had created or enlarged forests, while he had destroyed towns, villages, and monasteries which interfered with the preservation of game or the pleasure of the chase, the passion for which he had transmitted to his descendants. It was during these years of doubtful repose that William caused to be compiled the Doomsday Book, a complete record of the state of property in England, in repute to this day, and an indispensable labour after a conquest which had resulted in the transfer of nearly all the domains to other hands. William had divided the immense territories of which he had possessed himself into 60,215 fees of knights who had all sworn to him the oath of fidelity. Six hundred great vassals holding directly from the crown had also sworn to him faith and homage as their suzerain lord, and lest their united influence should become dangerous, the king had scattered their fiefs in different parts of the country among their enemies, the Saxons. Perhaps unconsciously William had thus obviated the greater part of the inconveniences of the conquest. This was not like the case of a feeble and effeminate people exhausted by the oppression, as were the Gauls at the moment of the invasion of the Germans. In England, two nations of the same origin and the same religion, equally brave and obstinate, had found themselves face to face. The Saxons were strong enough to resist their conquerors step by step. The Normans could not completely oppress a people always ready to revolt who had long possessed institutions fitted for developing individual liberty. Thus compelled to reckon with the conquered, the Normans necessarily acquired by degrees a greater respect for liberty than they had felt under the Norman feudal regime. The persecuted Saxons remained united in order to preserve some power of resistance. The Normans, triumphant but few in number among their enemies, were in their turn compelled to agree together that they might not be crushed. Governed by the feudal law, they owed to the king their lord feudal service and certain gifts or dues under definite conditions. The Saxons, who by degrees allied themselves with William, accepted the same conditions on receiving their fiefs, without, however, renouncing the laws peculiar to their race or the rural institutions, which the conquerors did not use themselves and did not always permit to be freely exercised. It was nevertheless to this assemblage of confused regulations, requiring long years to bring them into accord, that the two nations owed the preservation of their strength and their liberties during the fusion which was slowly in progress. In England, as on the continent, the feudal lords were grand justiciaries upon their lands, but they had acquired the habit of summoning eight or ten of the principal inhabitants of the neighbourhood in testimony to the truth of the facts alleged, according to the ancient custom, which is the origin of juries. When the criminal could not be found, the parish remained responsible for fines and costs. Thus the Saxons and the Normans came to perform themselves the duties of police and of maintaining order. 
Instead of succumbing, the liberties of England developed and fortified themselves by the conquest. It was a struggle, but not an oppression. Meanwhile, William the Conqueror grew weary of his inaction. Gloomy and alone, he felt the need of the noise of combat and the excitement of war. Philip I had refused to yield up to him the town of Mantes, and a portion of the French vexin over which he claimed to have right as Duke of Normandy. Philip had even encouraged his barons to make incursions into William's territory. Uniting his Norman barons and his English vassals, whose valour he knew, against his enemies, he crossed the sea in the latter day of the year 1086, to seize by force of arms what the king of France refused to yield to negotiations. On arriving in France, William had been taken ill, and it was not till the month of June that he was at length able to march against Mantes, which he captured and cruelly pillaged. While in the midst of the burning town he was encouraging his soldiers when his horse slipped. The king was an old man of heavy frame. He fell and was seriously injured. They carried him to Rouen, where he languished six weeks. Remorse now seized him. All the cruelties of his life rose up before him. He endeavoured to expiate them by gifts to the poor and endowments of the churches. His two younger sons were there, anxious to know in what way the king was about to divide his heritage. In spite of his anger against Robert, the king would not deprive him of the Duchy of Normandy, where he had been able to make friends. I leave to no one the kingdom of England, he said, for I did not receive it as a heritage, but won it by my sword, at the price of much bloodshed. I confided, therefore, to the good will of God, desiring, nevertheless, that it should go to my son William, who has always obeyed and served me in all things. And he wrote to the Archbishop Lafranc to recommend him to crown his son. Henry approached his father's bed. And I? said he, do you leave me nothing? Five thousand pounds weight of silver from my treasury, replied the king, who was now dying. And what shall I do with this silver if I have neither house nor land? cried the young man. Be patient, my son, said the king, and thou shalt perhaps be greater than all. Henry immediately obtained payment of the money and went his way while his brother William set out for England in order to accomplish his father's wishes by being crowned as soon as possible. The conqueror was left alone upon his deathbed. It was the ninth of September, 1087. William was sleeping heavily when he was awakened by the sound of bells. "'What is that?' he inquired. "'The bells of St. Mary sounding the prime,' was the answer." I commend my soul to Our Lady, the Sainted Mary, and to God, said the king, raising his hand towards heaven, and he expired. His sons had left him when dying, his attendants abandoned him when dead. A sudden stupor seized on the entire city upon the death of this powerful and terrible ruler. When the monks recovered themselves and flocked into the royal palace to fulfil the duties of their office, they found the chamber stripped and the body of the conqueror almost naked, stretched upon the ground. The king's sons troubled themselves no more with the funeral of their father than they had done with regard to his last moments. His body was conveyed to Caen, and it was a country gentleman named Erluin who undertook the expenses from a kind disposition and for the love of God. 
at the church of saint stephen of caen which the king had built and endowed the body of the monarch was on the point of being placed in a grave when a citizen of caen named azelin advanced from among the crowd and exclaimed bishop the man whom you have praised was a robber the ground on which we stand is mine it was the site of my father's house which he took from me to build his church i claim my right and in the name of god i forbid you to inter him in my ground or to cover his body with earth which is mine it was necessary to pay to azelin the just compensation which he claimed before the body was allowed to deposit it in the grave that awaited it it was found to be too narrow and they were compelled to place the coffin in it by force to the great horror of the bystanders and not till then was the conqueror able to enjoy in peace the six feet of earth required for his last resting-place. End of chapter 5